And I'm going to read once again um, the portion we read this morning, and then we'll finish off. The writer um, is encouraging his readers, discouraged as they were. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or fainted. We established this morning, we saw how that the writer presents to his readers the incentive for running the race, and that is the fact that we are surrounded, they are surrounded by extension, us, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. These are evidences borne by the heroes of faith as recorded in chapter 11, and then We looked at the imperative for running the race. It is a race that is set before us. It is divinely appointed. We have no choice in the matter. We can't choose our course. It is appointed for us. And this race we must run. Well, how are we to run this race? Instructions for running the race. First of all, there must be the discarding of all encumbrances. All hindrances, all impediments are to be taken out of the way. And so we come this afternoon to consider a second um, instruction he gives his readers. He instructs his readers that in running the Christian race, they are to be determined in their effort. They are to be determined in their effort. They are to be persevering. He says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And the word Paul uses here for endurance, the etymology of the word, the literal rendering of the word would be to remain under, to stay under. And what we have in that is the picture of a wrestling match, or even in this case of a race in which conditions are very stringent, conditions are very Um, pressurizing, but even the face of pressures, one remains under the pressure, one stays under and does not tap out, so to speak. As Christians, we're called to run the race that is set before us with endurance, with perseverance, which means we're to remain in the race with all the fatigue And all the temptation to throw in the towel, so to speak, even when we are fatigued spiritually, even when there's a temptation to throw in the towel, we are to remain in the race. We are to stay the course. By the way, the fact that we are called to run the race with endurance suggests that this race is not a quick, short sprint. It's not a sprint. This is a marathon event. It is a race we run until 
our Lord returns, or until we come to the end of our lives here on earth. This race is not a sprint. This race is a marathon, and it is a grueling event. And what that means is that you, as you and I run this race, we are to do so with the understanding that we are in this race for the long haul. Now, what is involved with running the race with endurance, running the race with patience? As I said, it means maintaining our course. It means remaining steady. It means remaining unwavering in the face of distractions and difficulties. It means we do not allow ourselves to be distracted, to be derailed by the failures of the past or even the victories of the present. It sort of reminds us of what the Apostle Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth to the things that are before. One distracting element in this race can be the victories of the past or even the failures of the past or even the blessings of the present. There's nothing that more retards our spirituality. There's nothing that more saps our souls of strength and energy for action than dwelling on the past with its defeat and failures. That is why we have to claim the promises of God's forgiving grace. We have to, as we said this morning, not be hampered by the guilt of past sins, but we are to do precisely as Paul says we are to get moving and leaving behind things where they should be. We don't want to be lingering with remorse and regret over the past. Running the race with patience means being dedicated. It means being thoroughly sold out to the task of completing our Christian journey. We're to so run regardless of the challenging, pressurizing conditions we encounter. You know very well that any achievement in life, any success in life is not going to come easily. Ask any successful athlete, ask any successful businessman or any other professional, and they'll tell you that perseverance, hard work, endurance is the way to make it to the top. And this is no less true when it comes to the matter of excelling in our spiritual lives. In fact, time and again, we see in the Word of God this emphasis, the need being pressed upon us to persevere in our Christian lives. For example, in his parable of the sower, Lord Jesus spoke of the seeds that fell on good ground in Luke chapter 8, verse 15, and he speaks of the seed falling on the good ground as representing the good hearer who bears fruit with patience. He bears fruit with patience. Interestingly, the word he uses there for patience, Jesus uses there for patience in Luke 8, 15, is the very same word that is used here in our text for endurance. Regarding the Christian's hope, Paul cites the need for perseverance, for patience. He says there in Romans chapter 8, verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In fact, our Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, that it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. 
He's not teaching there that we are saved by our perseverance. He's not teaching there that the way we make it to heaven is by fighting for dear life. But what he's saying is that part of what it means to be truly saved, those who are truly saved are going to persevere. They're going to endure to the end. Why? Because it's part of the package. It's part of the deal Part of God's saving purposes for us is that we would be kept in the faith right to the very end. And here in the book of Hebrews, the author in chapter 10, verse 36, had already exhorted his readers, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So in terms of instructions for running the race, number one, there's a need to discard all encumbrances. Number two, there must be determination of effort. We must be determined in our effort. We must persevere. We must endure in this race. We are in it for the long haul. This is not a quick short sprint. This is a marathon. This is a grueling affair. But then thirdly, a third instruction the writer gives his readers, and by extension he gives to you and me is this, if we're going to run this race, then we must direct our focus on Jesus. We must direct our focus on Jesus. Here's what he says, verse 2a. He says, looking unto Jesus. Whenever we see the name Jesus occurring alone, as in this verse, what is in view oftentimes is, is humanity. And in this regard, what the writer is apparently conveying is that it was in his capacity as man, it was in the capacity of his humanity that our Lord ran victoriously his race, the race that was appointed for him. He ran this race, he went through all the rigors, he went through all the hurdles, he went through all the challenges, not relying upon his divinity, but as a man, he went through this grueling race. Hence, as Christians, we should look closely at his example, at his instructions, as we run this race. We are to be looking to him. And the force of the word here, the verb looking, um, the force of this verb is that of looking steadfastly. It is the idea of looking away from other things and fixing the eyes exclusively on him. In fact, affixed to this verb for looking is the preposition af, the short, shortened form of apo, which means from, away from. The, 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 what, what the writer is literally saying here, we, we are to be looking away onto Jesus. Suggested there is this, we cannot be focusing on two different directions. We must be looking away from all else, from everything else, and we must be focusing on Jesus, on him alone. Our eyes must be exclusively, undistractedly fixed on Jesus. There must be singularity of focus on him. And why is that important? You see, one of the temptations you and I face, in fact, many Christians face, is to be looking at others. 
And here's the point. When we look to others, what's going to happen? We're going to find others better than we are spiritually in a re- real sense. What's that going to lead to? It's going to lead to discouragement. Well, I can never be like so-and-so. But also, even as we look at the failures of others, that too can be discouraging, especially for weaker Christians. Especially if that person they looked up to, that person was one they looked up to, that person falls, that person fails miserably, then they become discouraged. We're looking to others, will land us in discouragement. But then there's another way we can look if we do not look at others. We can look where? Within. <laughs> Yes, we ought to look within, we ought to examine ourselves, but here's the point, looking within can lead to despair. Because the truth is, as we look within, as we keep, if we keep looking at our lives, if we keep looking at our hearts, here's the point, it's not going to be very long before we fall into discouragement, if not despair. Why? Because our hearts, basically, apart from the grace of God, is prone to sin and is no good. Look to others and you'll be distracted. Look within yourself and you'll soon be discouraged, if not be led to despair. We are to be ever keeping our focus on Jesus. In fact, the 10 suggests this. It is a constant, continual looking. Do not take your eyes off him is the force of what the writer is saying here. And we're given, the writer gives us at least four reasons as to why we need to keep our focus on Jesus. Why we need to keep looking to him. First of all, we need to keep looking to Jesus because he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Verse 2b. He's described there as the founder and perfecter of our faith. More literally, the leader and completer of faith. Notice what I just said. is the leader and completer of faith. That's how it is literally in the Greek text. The English pronoun, our English pronoun, our, is not there. It is literally, this is the leader and completer of faith. And you say, what's the big deal? Well, the idea is that Jesus, of being the pioneer and perfecter of faith, is that not only does he stand first in the line as head and captain of all believers, but as the perfect manifestation of what it means to have faith in God. He's not just the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, but he's the pioneer and perfecter of faith, period. In other words, his is the business of faith. He himself exemplified faith. In him, faith is brought to its perfect fulfillment, its perfect manifestation, because he lived his life here on earth all by faith. In a secondary sense, he's the one who inaugurates as well as sustains and sees to completion the believer's faith. As 1 Corinthians 1, 8 assures us, he will sustain us to the end guiltless. Being confident of this very thing, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who hath begun a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In that regard, he is the initiator as well as the sustainer of our faith. 
Indeed, he is the one to whom all the victories, all the accomplishments of Israel's heroes of the faith are attributed. And he's qualified as such, you see, because he's the only one who has ever lived a life of perfect and unbroken faith, as one man puts it. His life was always lived in total dependence on God. His life was lived totally in dependence on God. His life was one of constant faith and trust in God. And that's why we need to look to him. We need to look to him as our captain and as our coach in this race. We need to look to him and him alone because he and he alone knows all the ins and outs of what it means to exercise the kind of faith that will enable us to run the race to which he has called us and which he himself oversees. Beloved, if you and I would make headway in this race, the race that is set before us, we'll want to keep our eyes on the captain. We'll want to focus on the coach. No one else will be of any help to us. Second, we are to be ever looking to Jesus, not only because he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, we are to be looking to Jesus because of the pains he himself endured in his race. We are to be looking to Jesus because of the pains he himself experienced as he ran his race. Here's what he says, verse 2, see, he endured the cross despising the shame and suggested here is that our Lord Jesus underwent the most massive form of agony and humiliation that anyone has ever experienced. He suffered shame, he suffered agony, he suffered degradation, humiliation. Yes, others before and after him died on a cross, suffered on a cross, but here's the difference. When it came to our Lord Jesus, he suffered as the spotless, divine, holy Son of God. He took upon himself our sins. That itself was a massive form of suffering for one who was holy. He suffered not as a sinner, but as the pure, holy, spotless Son of God, suffering the just for the unjust. He bore in his body the full measure of the fierce wrath of a holy God. To date, no one, no one has ever suffered like that. For this reason, beloved, he alone knows the full extent of pain, of sorrow, of difficulties that we could ever encounter in the course of our Christian lives. He has been there. He has suffered pain. He has suffered shame. He has suffered agony. He has suffered the agony and shame of the cross. But thirdly, here's why we need to look to Jesus. We need to be ever looking to Jesus because of the prize he himself achieved. The prize he himself achieved. Here's what our text tells us. Who for the joy that was set before him, and then look what else. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, he despised the cross, he despised the shame, and is set up down, he is seated at the right hand of God. That was a magnificent prize. 
And here we are told our Lord Jesus was able to overcome, how he was able to run with endurance, the race that was set before him, he was able to overcome because of the joy that was set before him, because of the prize, the trophy that was ahead of him. And who knows what that joy was? Yes, it was the prospect of a completed redemption for humanity. This was the very purpose for which he, as a son of God, became man. This was the very purpose for which he came into this world. He came in order that he might fulfill the will of his father, laying down his life to procure redemption for fallen humanity. That is why we can hear him say in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, my meat is to do my father's will and to finish his work. That is why we hear him in John chapter 19 verse 30 uttering those words. It is finished. It is finished. He was joyful that the the work that the father had given him to do, the work of redemption, was fulfilled. And that was the joy that was set before him. And so it was this fulfillment of his redemptive mission, his laying down his life for sinners to the will of his father that served as the incentive, the motivation for his courageous endurance of the cross. In no way was he daunted by suffering because, you see, he was mindful of the glories that were to follow. And what is our Lord Jesus teaching us here when we look to him? We learn as we look to him that we are not to be focusing on the present, on things which are seen, but on things which are not seen, the blessed eternal realities that supersede, that far outweighs any suffering that we could ever go through in this life. In the fourth place, we are to be ever looking to Jesus because looking to Jesus is a preventive against weariness and despondency. That's why we need to look to him. We need to look to him. We need to keep looking at him. Why? Because looking to him is a preventive against becoming weary, against becoming discouraged, against becoming despondent. Look at verse 3. For consider him... Who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted? There's no doubt that at some point or another you and I become weary, we become discouraged, we become disheartened. It happened to the prophet Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19 verses 1 through 10, it happened To the Apostle Paul, you remember 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of the great pressures which came upon us. He says how that we were pressed beyond measure so much that we despaired even of life. Paul had been there. Elijah had been there. It certainly can happen to us. And we've been there. You know, you have been there. I have been there. We become discouraged. We become disheartened. We may become weary in our minds, beloved, when constantly faced with opposition, when constantly bombarded by temptation, when constantly bombarded by persecution. These things can weary us, make us weary. 
We may become weary in our minds from the overwhelming pressures of trials and temptations. And the key to our endurance, the key to our staying the course is to, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, to consider Jesus. In other words, to contemplate him. Keep thinking about him. Look at what he went through. Look at the way people treated him. Look at the the hostility that they meted out to him. Look at what they did to him on the cross. They buffeted him. They spat on him. They humiliated him. We are to consider him, and he says, lest we become weary and discouraged. We're to be ever contemplating him, realizing that he too was tempted and tried in all points as we are yet without sin. And we should consider him both as to his trials and his triumph, lest we become weary and faint-hearted. The question is, have you been having spiritual fainting fits? Spiritual fainting fits? Have you been growing weary, discouraged of late? Well, it's more likely than not that your focus is not on Jesus. It's virtually impossible, isn't it, when we stop to think of it? That we could be looking to Jesus and at the same time be discouraged and disheartened and weary. And we have to say that whenever we are discouraged, whenever we are doubtful, whenever we are weary, here's the answer. We're not looking to Jesus. We're not considering him. We're not focusing on him. It means we're being drawn away. We are being distracted by circumstances. We are being distracted by someone or something other than Christ. You're growing faint and weary because you imagine that what you're passing through is unique to you. You say, no one knows what I'm going through. No one has ever gone through what I've gone through. Our text says different. Consider him who endured such Hostility against himself by sinners, lest you become faint and weary. My friends, the truth is you and I can never undergo a more trying ordeal than Jesus did. You and I can never meet with the kind of suffering that he endured. And the message to us this afternoon, the message to us this day, especially these days in which we live, discouraging, disheartening days, is to look to Jesus lest we lose our way, lest we lose our focus, lest we lose our spiritual balance, lest we lose the race set before us. Consider what he endured and how in the end, He triumphed. We need to look to him because he is a perfecter. He's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We need to look to him because of the pains he endured, the prize he achieved. We need to look to him because really looking to him is the only preventive we have against weariness. And discouragement. May God bless these truths to our hearts for His name's sake, for His glory. Amen.